This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. To the dismay of many music nerds, Condé Nast has announced layoffs at Pitchfork and folded the music journalism site under men's magazine GQ. Condé Nast acquired Pitchfork in 2015 after the site spent nearly 20 years being independent. Though now with a stripped-down staff, Pitchfork is one of the last major music websites standing. It also was one of the first to really build a name for itself. As the internet exploded, Pitchfork got in on the ground floor, expanding its reach and music reviews. But what you might not realize is the first few employees behind Pitchfork worked out of the ground floor of this city. Like, literally, a Chicago basement. And even as the profile of Pitchfork catapulted, the culture here continued to influence the music site. Later, we'll dig into what this merger means for the future of music criticism. But first, we're taking it back to the early days to trace the story of Pitchfork and its Chicago connections. We sat down with the OG crew, Ryan Schreiber, the founder of Pitchfork, and Chris Kasky, the first employee of Pitchfork and the co-founder of Chicago's Pitchfork Festival. Amy Phillips, who worked at Pitchfork for over 18 years until the layoffs last week, joined us too. Now here she is reflecting on these layoffs. I'm feeling uh, some sadness, of course, but mostly an intense a wave of gratitude. I feel so lucky for having gotten to be part of this amazing thing that we all built for 18 years. Hmm. Chris, your thoughts? Uh, you know, agree with Amy. I think it's a, a convergence of um, a sadness and disappointment and concern, but at the same time, uh, as Amy said, a, a immense pride and immense amount of gratitude and a and a flood of amazing memories and feelings about how special it was, what we all did together, what continued to be built um, over the last 20 plus years, mm-hmm. um, even, you know, even till today, of course, because it's it's been magical. So, yeah, it's been intense. Ryan, what's yeah. on your mind? Uh, yeah, um, a lot similar, you know, I mean, it's been um, it's been a, a pretty awful week past week. You know, the fallout has been very um very hard to watch i think you know it's just like my heart kind of breaking for everyone at pitchfork who um who has been on the front lines with it and everyone who's been affected by it but also you know wonderful to see this great um outpouring of you know love and support on the internet and just how it's affected the lives of so many people and um and also how it sort of like brought back uh, the team kind of together in a lot of ways Uh, a lot of us i think are kind of reaching out to each other in ways that maybe we um you know, hadn't uh, been as, uh, you know, dedicated, but it's, you know, we hadn't yeah. done as much in, in recent years. Well, Ryan, why don't you take us back to the beginning? Why 
did you found Pitchfork? Um, I founded it because I really was um, just a passionate uh, fan of music, journalism, and indie music. And um, at the time that I started it, I was living in Minneapolis. It was uh, 1996. And um, I had just been sort of really enamored of indie mu- and, and, and alternative music culture for several years. I kind of discovered it and it, it sort of became kind of part of my identity. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, and, um, and at the same time, I just was like, so um, kind of just thrown into that world and the community. It was, it felt like something that you could be a part of, you know, it felt, um, it, it, there was sort of a realness to it and that like, it felt like, you could participate in this culture, you know, um, just as a fan. And yeah. it really felt like that was uh, how uh, things operated uh, in, in indie music. And so, um, yeah, I kind of got on the Internet and I saw the potential right away for it as a publishing platform. And I had wanted to start my own music magazine, but I didn't really have any money for overhead and you know to publish an actual you know physical item mm-hmm. and uh, distribution and everything else so when i got online i was like okay wow this is it this is like this is how this is how we can do this yeah and you brought it to chicago why i did well <clears throat> um yeah, I don't. I mean, I was raised by you know Minneapolis music culture, and it was a wonderful place to grow up. But it was also kind of remote and out of the way of the touring routes for a lot of emerging indie and, and dance artists. So, a lot of bands and shows would kind of miss Minneapolis and just hit Chicago instead. And um, you know, while Minneapolis had uh, an amazing music scene in the in the eighties and early nineties, I was really um, I was really fascinated by what was happening in Chicago and music mm-hmm. at that time, the late 90s. So it was like the punk and jazz and post-rock scenes, um, you know, labels like Touch and Go and Drag City and Thrill Jockey and then all these clubs and Lounge Acts and Fireside Bowl and The Hideout. And, you know, the first time I, I drove to Chicago was to see uh, Yola Tango at the Metro with, like, the magnetic fields and Lamb Chop, and that was, wow. like, 1997. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> I wasn't even at the club before I had fallen so in love with the idea of the city that I decided, you know, I needed to live there. So it was just awe-inspiring, you know, driving down I-94 and just seeing this skyline that was like unlike any I'd ever seen and just like racing the L train in, you know, <laughs> down the interstate into the city. I just felt totally like head over heels. Yeah, such vivid memories you've got too. I love that. And Chris, I'm, I'm looking at you next because you were Pitchfork's first employee. Yeah. So, I mean, what were those early days like from your standpoint? I mean, they were exciting and um to Ryan's point about the internet in some ways, but even more broadly, just like the excitement that we all felt about both the potential as well as how we could do that in a way that was wholly ours, uh, that wasn't dictated by outside forces first and foremost, which is something that, you know, independent music's been so staunchly, uh, you know, vocal and literally and figuratively about. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, um, you know, to do so in a way that had not just vision and like a purpose, but that part of that purpose, meaning that, you know, to bring not just a community of people that you could kind of conceive and think about growing together uh, with your own ambitions and your own passion to help more people discover music and celebrate the things they love or discover or contextualize, but also uh, to, to embrace the connection that comes from something like music that is both 
lived inside of what we were doing, yeah. you know, with a small group. And as that group got larger, that kind of energy continued to emit. And then as you would see that connection to the world of music fans and the musicians and artists that were creating the music itself, it was, a, you know, everybody kind of felt like much like Chicago feels you're a bit of a flyover and independent mm -hmm. music was a bit of a flyover. And I think that galvanization of energy was really, um, you know, it was something that felt instinctual to, to all of us, but yeah. I don't think really, uh, you know, the purpose became like, how do we do something to celebrate and what we love? Yeah. And it was fun. To that end, Amy, I mean, what what do you think it is about the Chicago scene that, that sets it apart? And, and how did that change Pitchfork's perspective? Well, so I came in as an outsider uh, in 2005. Um, I actually was living in New York when I got hired and um, moved to Chicago for Pitchfork um, as the fifth employee. Um, and it was such a like night and day for me um, coming from New York and being part of that whole early 2000s scene with, you know, the Strokes and the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and all those bands uh, that was, you know, obviously incredible music, but there was so much money and record industry hype and press and all of these things. And coming from that to Chicago, which was, of course, there was, you know, there were labels um, and there was press, but such a such a lower level of that kind of crazy hype mm -hmm. um, that we could really uh, um, just form our own scene and have it be more, I mean, as cliche as it is, be, you know, quote unquote, about the music. I mean, really what it comes down to is money, uh, you know, about money. You know, it was so much cheaper to live and create art in Chicago than in New York that you could do so much more just crazy, fun, mm -hmm. ambitious stuff um, at a Chicago level that you couldn't do in New York. Yeah. Well, despite what we're talking about, Chris, the Pitchfork Festival mm -hmm. lives on it does, here in yeah, Chicago. Absolutely. How did that start? I mean, I think to Amy's point, you know, when you think about cultivating whether it's a scene or it's an energy, um, and to Ryan's point about thinking about, hey, this, the internet is the platform that we can live on, and uh, why don't we even make a magazine on the internet? This Part of the kind of the other side of that is that you are something digital, and so you're you live in the ether. So, yeah, you know, you don't really have a that connection that you cultivate in across message boards and like the litany of places that existed online. It was hard to galvanize um, in a way that while you could read the analytics and the numbers that live behind it, it was you know we wanted to be able to celebrate that in a way that felt tangible that you could not only I mean this is talking as music fans, not as people that wanted to start a festival to create a business. Um, like, let's do a festival that we would want to go to, yeah. full of artists we'd want to see. That's the best lens, I think. Yeah, I mean, it was, in, in, you know, you do your research, make sure you know what to do, not what not to do, take some chances, don't think about it, like, how much money can we make, but let's think about how special we can make it. And that was for ourselves, for the people that would attend, and, and you know, almost most importantly for those that would want to play it, putting these amazing artists that we talk about all day in many different ways on the site, uh, to bring them to life and you basically come to a world that feels communal mm -hmm. both in terms of who's working at the festival um, from you know Mike and what he would bring to the table in terms of not only what he did as you know the director of the festival but also the music community of Chicago coming together to haul ice bags around to all of us just kind of galvanizing together to put this on um, in a way that the audience could then connect to and it was just about the music you weren't there mm -hmm. to be distracted it was about celebrating that community 
um, and connection that you have to music that you love so much that yeah. feels so important to you that obviously is increasingly diminishing in, in perspectives in, in certain ways. But uh, at the same time, like it, it's for all of us and it will, may, it will and forever will be the most important connection you have to anything. So yeah. celebrating that and being a part of something that felt like that was not only possible here in Chicago, but uh, seeing it come to life yeah, in that first it. year, it's like what you do is you, you've created something that is digital in that in a very little way and you've mm -hmm. created something tangible out of it and that that manifested in a, a litany of beautiful ways ryan do you have any favorite festival experiences oh my god uh, yeah <laughs> i think <clears throat> um there are so many incredible musical moments that happened over the years i mean so many uh, moments that wouldn't have been able to happen just a few years later it was kind of like being able to sort of uh this kind of unique talent that we all had being able to spot you know artists really early on um and be able to book them before they were you know uh, way too big to to play uh you know a part of that size um was really incredible and um uh, you know i mean even probably in 2012 i think it was of kendrick lamar playing the blue stage uh very early on was was amazing and uh lady gaga showing up for that side stage was really surprising um there were there were a lot of incredible musical moments but i think the thing that um i i think is the most special when i have my, like my personal memories about it and i think for a lot of us it is the way that um that the festival kind of served as kind of like a big kind of extended family reunion mm -hmm. for all of these different writers who contributed to the site. Yeah. I mean, the backstage of it was these artists and bands kind of hanging out and this sort of a proximity um, and people being a little bit maybe starstruck by it, but also like really chill. And, you know, and, and it just it, it kind of felt like a whole commute, communal moment for all of the writers and contributors and editors and all the other people and the labels, and the industry, everything else. And, and also that that it, it managed to kind of create a destination festival in Chicago, which actually drew from the coast. So it mm -hmm. sort of inverted that kind of like coastal flyover vibe and was like, no, the actual, the main story's right here. Like this is, <laughs> this is, this is it. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it's really like all the years of getting to spend and like so many people who came every single year and who still go every single year. Right. Um, that to me is the most the most special it's really the community that that formed around it and uh, helped to produce it as well the local music scene that uh, yeah. everybody kind of came together to help make this thing happen well you know what i gotta ask too because i mean pitchfork it, it's really known for its reviews right famously it's very difficult to get a pitchfork 10 right mm -hmm. um and, and pitchfork's influence really grew ryan i mean there became a phenomenon of some pretty small acts making it big because they got a good review and on the flip side, you were also accused of tanking people's careers if you gave a bad review. So, I mean, what did it feel like when you realized Pitchfork has some power? Um, it, uh, it first, it was really, I mean, it was just thrilling in the beginning because it was like, wow, okay, well, we're doing what the music press should do, right? Like, what to me the music press was always about um, when I was picking up you know, all these magazines, it was like kind of, it was a, my way of discovering new artists. And, um, and I think at that time too, um, you know, music uh, magazines were kind of starting to suffer a little bit and really starting to kind of have to like, you know, tighten their belts a bit. Um, and, and a lot of the sort of music discovery aspects and the curatorial aspects sort of were, you know, uh, kind of fell by the wayside for, for some publications. And um, to me, it was kind of like, okay, well, we're coming into this new decade. 
um, of, you know, the 2000s and, you know, the Sonic Youth and Pavement and all these artists that we've loved for so long are kind of like either disbanding or Mm -hmm. kind of going away. And it was like, well, oh, my God, we're in like this position to be able to kind of like point the way forward. Um, So being able to recognize artists and, you know, introduce them to our audience and um and and have people kind of be willing to follow us and, right. and hear our taste and, and 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 be able to discover music through it um was really thrilling um i think we were not as prepared for um you know the the the, the sort of like destruction of certain artists careers or the yeah. you know at least maybe negative impact that, mm-hmm. that the that the reviews had at that time um, and that was a little bit of a learning curve for us because we were used to being very like, you know, outspoken and, you know, kind of, you know, snarky. And um, and and that was I just don't think that's something that a lot of, um, you know, music publications have ever really encountered, you know, right. like like really having a negative impact on, on an artist's career because of a negative review. So yeah. I'm seeing, you know, in our early 20s. You know, <laughs> right. You were all very young at the, at the time. Yeah. Too. We're going um, what's happening here. So well, here's yeah, the thing. So we, we're about to launch into another conversation uh, just about the future of music criticism here in, in Chicago. Uh, so before I let you go, I mean, Chris and Amy, just real quick thoughts because uh, we're almost out of time. I would just love to hear from you. What do you think? What, what's what's next? Amy, you first. It's a really great question. I mean, the future <clears throat> does seem to live, you know, on social media, um, video platforms. Um, but I do think there is still a very large appetite for long form, well thought out, passionate criticism um, uh, in the written word um, in some way, you know. Pitchfork has a big audience. People read our reviews. Um, and I think that, that you know, I still want to read that. I know a lot of people feel like that. So what form that takes, I don't know, but I don't think it's going away. Yeah. Yeah. Chris? I think, I mean, ultimately, we very acutely realized and understood and embraced the fact that we were never going to be for everybody, but we were going to mean a lot to somebody, you know? Mm-hmm. Um and when you're not trying to talk to everyone, you can talk to anyone theoretically, but at the same time, those that find you and, uh, and connect with that, you know, you start to understand that. And so um, while Pitchfork was a destination that you not, it was not for everybody. It was for someone and those people that, that knew us and it, as it continued to grow and grow organically, um, they saw what Amy just described, which is yes. the thought and love and care we put in um, comprehensively to covering music, both um, on a journalistic level and beyond. And, I think a lot of that energy uh, and a lot of that goes back to the initial things we were talking about, which is connection, it's community, it's feeling as though that you can, can, you know, you can just, you can find both discover or have discourse. And that prompt is still um, immensely important. And, you know, again, to underline what Amy said, like the audience is not small. Like, even though it's not 100% of all people, if it's 3%, it still means that uh, there's a, a lot of people out there that really want to find things be a part of this thing and how that manifests seems unclear but i as disappointing and and sad as this last week has been for people that i love and care about but also for pitchfork that i love and care about um i there's an element of me that remains hugely optimistic yeah that's chris kasky ryan schreiber and amy phillips talking about how chicago culture has shaped the music criticism and news website pitchfork thank you all so much 
Love it or hate it, Pitchfork has become a major fixture of music criticism. The website fills a unique niche, straddling the obscure and the mainstream. And so when Pitchfork got folded under GQ, a men's magazine with a pretty different brand, some readers and writers were feeling like this was the final nail in the coffin for music journalism. But there's still a strong DIY scene in Chicago and beyond, and tons of people hoping to save this form of writing. So here to talk about the current moment of music journalism and what this all could mean for the future is Britt Julius, the Chicago Tribune's music critic, and Alejandro Hernandez, a freelance music journalist based in Chicago. Uh, so first off, Britt, when you heard about the layoffs and this whole fold into GQ business, what did you think? I was deeply confused because Pitchfork in my mind is such an institution that I just never imagined that anything would actually happen to it. We really don't have a music publication, as you said, that sort of straddled the line between underground and, and more mainstream. And so I assumed by that stature that it would never really lose its place or have any sort of folding into another publication like that. That I think in particular was the most shocking to me. Yeah. Alejandro, earlier we heard from the founder and longtime employees of Pitchfork uh, they were all pretty young when they got started, but this was uh, a different time, right? We're talking mm -hmm. about the 90s, uh, the early 2000s. Um, you're in your 20s. Yes. So what does it feel like to be an early career journalist in this now? It's definitely frustrating. Um, so I currently freelance. I've been freelancing. Well, I've been, I'd say my experience as a journalist has uh, lasted for about six, seven years, going back to my time in college, doing college radio. But uh, in terms of like actually getting paid to be a writer, uh, it's only been for about the last three or four years. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's super frustrating just because like in my head, I really would have thought I would have had some type. I haven't even had like an internship or anything at like a, a news publication or anything like that. I've really had to like, I, I really treat being a freelance journalist like the same as like being like an underground rapper because I really have to like scrap my way for like everything, you know. Um, when I first quit my day jobs, who pursue freelance full-time just because I didn't have the time to dedicate to writing I thought it was going to be like I don't want to say easy but I thought I would be able to like get stories picked up quickly mm -hmm. but like when people don't know you they're not going to you know re pick it, read that email so like I had to like really like scrap my way and make connections and you know I'm, it was a it was a grind yeah yeah and uh I'm not I'm not here to glorify that grind uh either you know it shouldn't have to be that way mm-hmm Britt, what was your experience getting into music criticism? Um, it was uh, difficult, right? So I um, did not go to traditional journalism schools. Um, I studied English literature and philosophy. Um, I had worked at museums and at tech companies, but I had a blog where I wrote a lot about music. And so, um, you know, I wasn't sure exactly how I could get opportunities to freelance, but I, you know, eventually, uh, you know, some people at Pitchfork saw my work and asked me to start writing for them. Mm -hmm. It was uh, an incredible opportunity, but um, you know, I, I, uh, it's tough out there, right? Even then, this was about like 2013-ish or so, you know, um, publications were, um, you know, laying off people, they were closing down, they were becoming online only, or the online publications, you know, the people who were running them were, were moving on. So it wasn't um, as easy as it was maybe in the 90s or early 2000s, you know, there were already sort of major changes happening mm -hmm. back then. Uh, I mean, does it feel like creating something like Pitchfork is possible now in the current landscape? 
of the internet and the industry? Yeah, um, I don't think it is. I think that you can obviously, like new publications, organizations are coming about um, all the time. I'm thinking of something like Defector, which is, um, you know, was a, a is a worker owned uh, organization, but um, you know that sort of monoculture, which allowed for something like Pitchfork to grow from the underground to the mainstream, it's just really, really hard to do. And I think also the way that people really consume media now, it's through these other platforms, um, social media platforms like a TikTok, like mm -hmm. a Instagram, um, like Twitter, and things like that, which doesn't sort of allow for the um, sharing of information in the way that sort of traditional media um, requires. Right. Yeah. So it's not necessarily story as much as it is um, opinions or responding to things and, and things like that. So, yeah. yeah. Alejandro, what value would you say music criticism holds? Um, uh, the value it holds, at least in today's society, I kind of view it as like a mirror. Because um, ultimately, like, that's what I think that's what pop culture is in general. Mm -hmm. It's just a mirror to just regular culture. Um, and it's important to, and, you know, we sometimes, like, I've even kind of struggled in, like, my time like, man, is it even worth, like, to write about, like, these silly songs and stuff like that, like, in the grand scheme of society? Um, but then, like, as I, like, start to really, like, think about it and, like, you know, talk to, like, other people who've been doing it, it's, like, we're really, like, analyzing the microcosms of our society through mm -hmm. these pieces of art that represent said microcosms, and that's important. And music criticism or, you know, art uh, criticism in general is kind of, like, you know, I view it as kind of like we're documenting all the art that's being consumed today so that way it could be studied later on in the future. Yeah. Uh, I want to hear from both of you on this. I mean, was there a time where you felt like one of your reviews really made an impact on someone's life? I would say, um, yeah, I mean, there's been, um, whether like reviews or even just sort of, I do a lot of feature reporting mm -hmm. um, for the Tribune. And so um, there's definitely been a lot of young bands who have gotten um, opportunities just like through the work that I've done or just sort of covering them. I was speaking to someone earlier about this. I, I covered a, a group called um, uh, Horse Girl and they were in high yeah. school and, you know, they reached out to me with a really great email um, being like this is our music can you check us out and you know we're like 15 16 years old and I listened I was like this is an incredible song I absolutely want to write about you and you know that was one of like the first really you know long pieces that had been written about them and wow. afterwards they were able to um, you know, they were, I bet they were on cloud nine. Or, yeah, they've come out with an album, like the whole thing, you know, so those um, little almost like an intervention of, of music critics and music journalists um, can really sort of um, create a pathway for uh, new emerging younger underground artists to find success in a way that's really difficult and is outside of the algorithm. Right? Yeah. What about you, Alejandro? Anything come to mind? Yeah. So uh, likewise, I also do uh, I specialize more in like profiles um, and feature pieces. Um, and yeah, I've definitely like had artists come up to me like at months after I've written about them and straight up tell me like, bro, your piece changed my life. Um, one of the people off the top of my head, uh, I did a profile for uh, Rico Shy for uh, the Chicago Reader. Mm -hmm. So shout out Rico. Um, I think the hoodie I'm wearing right now is a, uh, he's a producer rapper named Green Slime who uh, I've been following him for years. And so like to see his growth throughout the years um and like I've been able to like kind of document it throughout that entire time nice um same thing for like another local artist named uh Femdot who he's uh made I went to school with him so it's like oh, and yeah. he was like one of my first he was the first solo interview I had on my college radio show 
where I, I just did it by myself. I didn't mm-hmm. have a co-host, so like to see his growth. So yeah, there's definitely definitely more than a few artists that I'm like yeah, we've kind of grown together. Is how I see it. I, I don't I don't see that. I don't see like oh I put you on like I was one of the many pieces to help you help elevate you and then like in turn since they elevated that my work becomes elevated as well absolutely absolutely and so you know speaking of our work because you know it's not just pitchfork we're seeing a bigger trend right now Britt. i mean what does it mean to have so many publications and websites shut down right now it kind of feels like it's happening all at once i don't know about you yeah it's really hard um i saw a twist a list on twitter a couple days ago someone just with all the layoffs that have been happening it's it's across kind of wild yeah um it's it's upsetting it's frustrating um it's also you know these things in a lot of ways tend to happen in waves right Mm -hmm. so um you know i've experienced at least two or three different waves of of this happening throughout my uh career and you know there was maybe a couple years ago there was this big pivot towards video and so a lot of places were um doing mass layoffs so they could focus on video then Mm -hmm. they realized that wasn't the end-all be-all and things like that because they were creating for social media which can always change its algorithms in terms of what's successful um but the state that we're in right now um it's not because of a a pivot to video or the platform or things like that um it really just seems to be happening um indiscriminately it seems to be happening um you know maybe due to the wrong types of financial interest are in these different publications and outlets and mm-hmm. it's forcing these places to cut down because even if they're doing fine they want them to be making some ridiculous profit yeah. um, and so it's really frustrating a lot of really great talented people who have been working hard and grinding you know a lot many of them did not have staff jobs immediately they yeah. were freelancers like us um, and you know really worked their way up they are losing their positions and um, unfortunately there isn't uh, this sort of abundance of outlets that used to to exist before where maybe you could you know pivot or find someplace new and so um it's really sad and i've been seeing a lot of journalists as well um on places like x um or you know blue sky talking about okay how were you able to you know sort of transfer your skills in journalism to mm-hmm. other industries and you know what happens to the state of journalism in, in general um if we are losing these really great um writers it happens to the state of journalism in general what, what's the what's the state of diy efforts now in, in yeah. chicago so I could definitely speak on that. Um, so uh, me and some friends of mine, uh, we're actually, uh, we have like a little collective that we call Real Ones. And uh, we host different like events throughout the city, like highlight for like specifically for like independent local creatives to yeah. like, come together um, and support one another. But then we also like interview like indie artists like in the city and then like indie artists that are visiting in town. Like just last night, I had the privilege to speak with Arm & Hammer um, when they're performing at Lincoln Hall. Um, but like in the past, we've talked to like Mick Jenkins, uh, Pink Sifu, um, Mavi. Um, yeah, just like a lot, like we've been able to make a lot of progress just in like the last year alone where we went from like maybe like two, 3,000 followers around this time last year. Mm-hmm. And now we have like over 15K. Wow. Real like crazy, like we just got like, I don't want to say lucky because like we put our posi- we put ourselves in the position for luck. But like we just had like a lot of viral moments with like these more prominent yeah. artists that kind of. But then aside from us, I also got to shout out the Ghetto Flower, These Days Magazine. That's they've been doing the thing for like years. Yeah, I mean, there's been this shift to independent blogs again, mm-hmm. right? Um, so sometimes with subscriptions. Absolutely. Yeah. Is that sustainable? Um, 
Uh, I think it can be sustainable. You have a, a really great model for it. If you are um, consistently putting out work, um, being innovative, being creative, and you know the the publications or the substacks or things like that um, that have found success thus far, you know they're consistent with what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, they have people behind the scenes, whether it's doing the visual work or the written work that are distinct, and people, you know, they will pay the money yeah. to um, continue to hear what they have to say. I mean, I'm subscribed to a lot of paid. Me too. <laughs> Some you know, because I'm like, I want to hear what this person has right. to say. I really value it. It's important to me. It makes my day better or my week better. Yeah. Um, so I think it's it's definitely going to be possible. But, you know, in that same sort of mega um, uh, monoculture way that we've seen with a lot of other publications, yeah. you know, that's a little bit harder to say. All right. Got to wrap there. Britt Julius is a music critic for the Chicago Tribune. And Alejandro Hernandez is a freelance music journalist here in Chicago. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. This episode was produced by Max Lubers and edited by Meha Ahmed and Linnea Dominic. If you like this music content, well, stay tuned for an upcoming conversation with rapper, activist, and now writer, Common. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and thank you for listening. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.